Welcome to One Move at a Time, the U.S. chess podcast that explores people and organizations who are advancing our educational mission to empower people, enrich lives, and enhance communities through chess. Our goal is to give you ideas and methods you can use in your own community to help you build chess in your area one move at a time. Make sure to listen to our family of U.S. Chess podcasts, which include cover stories with Chess Life on the first Tuesday of each month, in which Chess Life editor John Hartman goes more in-depth with each month's cover story, Ladies' Night, which drops on the third Tuesday of each month, and that is hosted by our Women's Program Director, Jennifer Shahadi, and on the fourth Tuesday of each month, Chess Underground, hosted by our Assistant Director of National Events, Pete Karyanis, in which he examines the game's eccentricities, peculiarities, and theoretical novelties. All can be found at the podcast link on Chess Life Online at uschess.org, or by subscribing via Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Now, let's welcome our guest to this month's podcast. Welcome to the November edition of One Move at a Time. Our guest today is Brian Karen. Originally from Merrick, Long Island, he now lives in Levittown, New York. Brian discovered chess around the age of 16 in the mid-1980s. While in high school, he worked at the computer chess store, Your Move. After college graduation, he worked with emotionally disturbed children for five years at a group home assessment center, but around 1997, he started teaching chess, which he has done ever since, often seven days a week. He considers himself more of a chess fan than a player, and he is passionate about chess history. When he studies, it is more for entertainment than improvement. And as a chess player, he has hovered at 2100 for a few decades and boasts the FIDE Candidate Masters title. He can even claim to have played a very young Nakamura and Kairawana, among others at the Nassau Chess Club, um, among other regulars there as well. Brian's chess life includes playing internet chess since the 1980s, being one of the first ICC admins around 1993, broadcasting the first tournament on the internet, providing beginner commentary on the IBM site for the Deep Blue match, and broadcasting the 1995 Anand Kasparov World Championship match from a glass booth above the players in the World Trade Center. I came to know Brian through Facebook, where he founded and administers the Chess Book Collectors Group, which has 43,000 members, and the FIDE World Championship 2021 group, which has 56,000 members. He's also a former U.S. chess volunteer on our Scholastic Council. Welcome to the show, Brian. Welcome, Dan. Thank you for that introduction. Wow. I didn't realize I did all so much stuff. <laughs> yeah, it's sometimes uh, it's hard to realize exactly how much one has done in their life and career until it's put down on paper like that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I've been like something like a, a Zelig, like the Woody Allen movie, where just things have just fallen in my lap, like, you know, becoming an admin on the Facebook group, all that stuff. And um, yeah, all of a sudden I've done this and that, and I just in the right place at the right time in a lot of cases. Well, we're going to be talking about all of that through this show. Um, but let's start at the beginning. You say you discovered chess at the age of 16. What were the circumstances around that? Okay, so I, I knew the rules earlier, but, you know, I was like pretty much any, you know, non-serious chess player. I just kind of knew the rules. Uh, I think like sixth grade, uh, I remember being into it a little bit, playing some of my friends. But when it really took off was I, I think it was probably ninth grade or 10th grade, uh, I visited England and they had um, electronic chess set there. And I remember this is like unheard of back then, you, you know, this this electronic chess set. And uh, it was at Harrods, this famous uh, this, um, mall in, in England. 
And um, I really wanted to get it. My parents didn't want, my dad didn't want to get it for me. And then eventually, um, we, he did get it though, eventually. And uh, that was my first, like, I really got into it. I was playing on this little pig set and it would kill me. And I remember I would do what I called the bell formation where I'd play E4, D4, F3, and C3. Like I was making up my own opening. It's funny, uh, the other day I was teaching a class and the kid was doing the same thing. Um, anyway, so that, that really got me intrigued. Um, and then uh, doing that, I called Your Move, um, which was a, a store nearby. It's still around and it was something of a pioneer and, and not just computer chess sets, but they put out the um, computer chess reports, which is a very big magazine back then. They worked with Larry Kaufman, international master Larry Kaufman. And um, they, uh, they, they put out the list. I was actually an editor. Computer, stop. I was actually an editor on the, the magazine. And truth be told, I really didn't do that much, but the owner uh, put me on there. So they, I was writing the forefront of that also, um, playing the tabletop chess sets. And um, one of the things uh, that, that I noticed uh, when, when I first started playing tournament chess, I had already been playing on the tabletop machines for like a year or so, um, like pretty intensely, because once I shipped out stuff, you know, they had the chess machines there and I'd play them. So when I went to play my first tournament, I was already pretty good, probably 1800 or, or something like that. And um, that was unheard of back then. Nowadays, it would mean nothing. It, it wouldn't even be that good necessarily because um, everyone's playing online and everything else. But uh, back then, I remember people were like amazed. I like beat a 1900 and did this. It looked like I was some humongous talent. But again, I just got into the computer chess stuff really just before everyone else. Um, so that, that was uh, more or less my experience. Well, there's a couple of things about that that's interesting to me. What was, number one, uh, did you say your move is actually still a storefront operating entity? Oh yeah, yeah. they're still around. They sell chess um, chess sets. You can find them on. I, I believe it's called. Uh, let me let me just click look this up. Quinton runs it, and uh, if you type your move chess, they're they're a very big dealer. They they sell all sorts of chess sets. Uh, their site is now Chess USA. Uh, I'm just quick calling it up, chessusa.com. And uh, yeah, they, they've been selling sets. Uh, Steve opened up the store in, in sometime in the 70s, and eventually he sold it to someone I worked with, uh, Quentin. And they've been running the set ever since. Uh, it's nice. They have a lot of chess sets. And they don't sell computer chess sets anymore. Um, that was, you know, they're, they're starting to bring them back a little bit. But at some point, that was phased out because your desktop computers were stronger than the uh, tabletop sets. But now they're bringing them back, BGT and some other boards I saw, so people are, are getting back into it. And then also, you you came out of the gates with uh, an almost a 1900 rating, which means that you not only were learning from these computers, you were surpassing them at that time, right? Um, no, the computers when I started, uh, so I was probably, I don't know my exact age when, when I started, but when I started, the big thing was they just reached an expert rating. And I would play a computer called the Novag Super Constellation, like over and over again. And, you know, it really taught me things like uh, the end game, you know, because I got to any position where, you know, I had a winning king and pawn end game. I mean, certain ones that could play well, but like, for example, I learned to get really good at protected pass pawns because the computer had no clue how to deal with those end games. And I learned a lot of standard mate sacrifices, anything that would drive it beyond the horizon effect. Uh, you know, the horizon effect is the point at which a computer it doesn't see past, uh, whereas humans intuitively can sometimes, 
you know, see past it. Of course, not so much anymore. Now the computers are way stronger than us. But back then, I think the Super Constellation was 2017, and I had a lot of wars with it <laughs> and some of the other machines back then. You and I are roughly the same age, and I remember uh, very clearly all the Your Move um, ads that were in Chess Life at the time. T- tell me more about working at Your Move. It, it must have felt like having your feet firmly planted in the future. Oh, yeah, it was absolutely amazing. Uh, again, I, the reason I got the job, again, when I got that little tabletop machine that I told you about, Your Move put out an ad wanting someone to help box up the stuff. And um, they, you know, they would normally get from, you know, your average people in Belmore, New York, that was next to where I lived in Merrick. And um, they've since moved, by the way, uh, to Massapequa. But in any case, um, so when I showed up saying, yeah, I know how to play chess and, you know, uh, you know all this, it was like they were amazed. Um, it, it was run by this guy, Steve Schwartz. He was an English teacher, a very smart guy, a very good businessman. And at a certain point, you know, he, he decided he didn't want to teach anymore. And they were selling actually printers and computer chess machines. And I think Steve was more or less, uh, he was, you know, into gadgets and he always got the best cars, you know, car fan and stuff. And uh, so I think he was thinking maybe he'd he'd mainly uh, sell printers and he'd do this on the side of the computer chess. But by the time I was working there, which again, it was in the mid 80s, so it had been open for about a decade. um, They were both pretty popular, I'd say equally. The printers, he had laser jet printers back then. And uh, yeah, definitely the computer chess machines was, uh, it was a new thing for chess. In fact, we would, sometimes I would go to the club. And here's a funny story. I was working with this guy, Bob Sostak, who was also one of the salesmen. He was a bit older than me. And he really mentored me in chess. Um, and uh, so anyway, we went to the Freeport Chess Club to test out the machines so they could get a rating. And again, it was a big thing. We would be there with the chess machine. A lot of people didn't know what the heck that was. Or, you know, we'd be playing the masters and stuff. And, uh, you know, there I would be on the machine, you know, uh, you know, and, um, and I, I don't know if I had played tournaments at that point. If I did, I had just started. And, um, so I'd be taking on these masters and, and playing them. But what happened was Bob was getting really annoyed with me because I was moving very slowly, like moving the pieces, like Bob's a blitz player. Um, so, you know, Bob was going to slam out the pieces, hit the clock. Um, so he had to switch me off because I think I might have cost him a game or two that way. Um, so that, that was pretty funny. You, you know, looking ahead also, here's one other funny story, a little bit on a tangent. My friend, uh, Senior Master Roger LaFleur, he was working at the Harvard Cup. Um, we might talk about that later. I broadcast the Harvard Cup for the Internet Chess Club. I think that was the first tournament broadcast online, certainly by the Internet Chess Club. And uh, the Harvard Cup was where you match computers against uh, strong masters, sometimes grandmasters or international masters. And uh, again, most of the people were not that strong who were running the computer. But my friend, Senior Master Raj LaFleur, who was a very strong player, um, he was playing against Danny Kopech. He was moving the pieces for the computer against International Master Danny Kopech. And uh, what happened was Danny said he doesn't want Roger uh, moving the pieces for him anymore. And, you know, Chris Shabby, who runs the, who ran the Harvard Cup along with, I think, Danny Edelman, um, they're like, why? You know, what's the problem? Senior master, he knows where the pieces go. It shouldn't be a problem. And Danny said, Roger knows when the moves are good or bad. So when he plays a good move, he slams it down and hits <laughs> the clock. And it's throwing me off. Uh, I thought that was pretty yes, funny. Yes. So with, with all this uh, computer prep, did, did you have any carbon-based life forms teaching you chess as well? Or was it all, in, before your first tournament, was it all computer-based? 
Yeah, you, you mean when I was first starting out in chess? Um, yes. Bob Sostak again. He was uh, he was a so he was uh, he worked with me at Your Move Chess, and he gave me he ran the Lantra Chess Club back then. So he gave me some advice. Um, so he helped me a little bit there, but mostly it was just me playing against these computers. I, like I, I obviously didn't have lessons or anything. And then sometimes I'd go to Bob's house. We play. We had a couple of our friends there. We'd play Blitz. Um, but no like formal lessons. Those really weren't done very much at that time. Um, you know, I mean, maybe like some grandmasters were teaching very wealthy people, but for the most part, it was just playing. And even and back then, you know, I really got into books. But when I was using the computer, I think back then I wasn't even reading many chess books. I did read some. Um, the World of Chess by Sadie and Lessing. Bob lent me that book, and I read it in like a week. Uh, I mean, a weekend. It was a it's a big chess history book, and I love that book. Um, and I read, I remember reading Bobby Fischer Teaches Chess. And that was a great sort of second book after you learn the rules. It, it's funny, you know, when, and I don't know if it's the same for you or other chess players. When I go back in my memory, um, you know, I remember reading Bobby Fischer's Teaches Chess and how much I enjoyed it and, uh, you know, was learning from it. And now, of course, if I look at it, because I use it for teaching sometimes, it's like a complete beginner book. But um, back then, you know, it's like my memory remembers what it was like back then, even though, you know, because even though I'm a stronger player then, I can see it through a weaker player's memory. I, I don't know how to explain it, but um, but I didn't do much reading or um, or lessons. It was mostly just playing the computer. You know, and, and the way it would always work. You know, uh, with these computers. Uh, uh, you know, when I went to a new level, uh, originally I would just be getting killed, and I was really competitive. Now I'm not really that competitive person. I was really kind of you know getting annoyed. Well, you know, because you'd lose for dumb reasons. You know, against these computers, they patch them wonder as they do and then eventually it would happen where i draw it and then next thing you know i'm beating it pretty easily or at least well maybe next time it's challenging but eventually i'm beating it easily on that level and then i'd move up again probably i should do the same thing today i'd probably improve a lot more because the computer's a lot better <laughs> yeah and with all this computer experience it's not surprising that you were an early adopter of online play yeah. Talk a little bit about the sites in the early days and what was the experience of playing on the early days of the internet? So, yeah, the early days, uh, you know, again, that's, uh, you know, it was the mid 80s. I was on, um, I think it was called the Prodigy Network was the first one that I was on. And then there was this network, the Link Network. Um, and I remember I met Alan Cantor. He still works for USCF, well-known chess teacher and figure in chess online. We played or something like that. And uh, he told me I should go to the Nassau Chess Club. This was before I played in tournaments, and he would introduce me and show me around. Now, up until that point, I did work in the store and I did use the computers. But when I went to the Nassau Chess Club uh, without, you know, to meet Alan that, that first time, I opened up the door, at, you know, in this like it's a big building, and the room was filled, maybe sixty or seventy people, all at tables playing chess, you know, with their clocks and stuff. And I would say that was the moment when I really became a tournament player because I, I didn't realize up until that point, you know, I mean, obviously I had clues and stuff with working at the store, but I didn't realize just how big chess was um, and that it was like a real thing. So so at that point, um, you know, I was less interested in my video games and other things like that because I, I think at least subconsciously I was like, well, you know, chess, there's a real thing to this. And sometimes I point this out to, you know, other people who get into chess that, Yes, you know, you can get really good at a video game. Like I was into this video game Ultima or something. But, you know, you'll master all those skills. And then three or four years later, there'll be some other video game around and no one will even know what Ultima is. Um, but chess, you know, once I saw all those people playing and 
I was like, whoa, this is like a big thing. Um, and yeah, working on those sites, they, we used, uh, I think, uh, like a 300 board modem. I mean, I was on all the ancient technology. I don't know how I was able to afford it because it was super expensive, these sites. Uh, you know, if you're on for an hour, you know, it, it, it adds up. Uh, I don't remember the exact prices back then, but I know you could quickly get pretty big bills. Um, and you would go on, they, they'd have little like text uh, there. Um, sometimes I would, I would watch games. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm sure if I saw the graphics now and stuff, it would look very primitive. Back then, you know, just remembering it in my memory, it, you know, it was good enough. You know, I had the board. I'd play different people. I remember there was a guy, Nayland, who was a very strong player. I still don't know who he was. And uh, I would sometimes watch him. He played the perk. And, and I, now I play a lot of those hypermodern things. I think he was an influence. Um, and then later on, after playing on the link, um, I, I went to the um, Sierra Imagination Network which was kind of a step up in graphics and everything. And this was a bit later. This was like in the early 90s, uh, like 91, 92. Um, and that was where um, Hannon Russell had a lot of had a chess history bulletin board on there, which is very interesting. Well, not him, actually. He would contribute to it. He would, he would always put up uh, like, um, you know, little short stories about chess history. So they had a little bulletin board there that was good. But actually the first time that I remember um, – well, okay, so I did play a little bit at my home, you know, and I told you the story about Alan Cantor. But then later, when I was at Syracuse University, I remember a friend of mine saying, you got to see this, Brian, because everyone knew I played chess there. Um, and he took me to this building in Syracuse um, where they had the big mainframe computers. And he wanted me to play against some guy in Chile or someplace very far away. And the, basically what you would do is you'd type in your move, like I type in E4, and then the, the computer printout would come out with a picture of the board after E4. And then after a little while, it would come out with another picture of the board after my opponent's response. I might even have this printout somewhere. And I played a whole game against this guy. Looking back, that must have been the Internet Chess server, later to become the Internet Chess Club, or at least part of it. And that was really uh, the early days of the Internet. And I remember after playing that game, I was talking to my uncle, who, who's a very smart guy, and I said, you know, this internet thing, it's going to be pretty big because I just played for free, uh, you know, in Chile. Some guy in Chile, I could play right over there and we could we could uh, chat, you know, things like that, send text back. Um, and I said, I should really invest in that. But then I went to the library. I looked up internet, you know, I was trying to find internet to invest in. And of course, there's no stock that's internet. And then uh, my ambition faded from there. Probably I would have invested in something that went under anyway, but it, it's kind of funny. <laughs> right in the beginning of the internet. Because this is another funny thing, a little bit off, off from chess. Um, you know, so I was into the internet, you know, again, from like, say, 1990, you, you know, all through, right? And I was doing all these things on the internet with chess and otherwise, and no one was talking about it. And I was like, this is kind of odd. Like, everything's going to change. Like, you know, I remember talking to people, oh yeah, you know, music, you can download it from the internet. These music stores, you know, have this or newspapers. Well, you can get, I mean, they still have newspapers, but you can read everything online now. And, you know, and, and I sounded like some crazy guy. And then somewhere around 95, 96, it seemed to click with the public, maybe even a little bit later. And then everyone, you know, as we know, everything completely changed, but it was funny because it could have changed much earlier. It just didn't catch on. And now I see a lot of things happening in the world today, you know, with artificial intelligence, they have these 3D printers that supposedly print, like all the things they say might happen, self-driving cars. And, um, you know, the technology is sort of there for a lot of these things. 
but it happened uh, quick. You know, the big one is virtual reality. Uh, of course, Mark Zuckerberg just had a big thing about that. Um, I think that pretty much exists, but very few people are using it, um, including me. I haven't really used it much, but uh, well, I guess I'm, I'm late to the show because Mark Zuckerberg just announced some stuff. We'll see how well his Facebook thing goes. But I definitely think that's going to be sort of like what happened with the Internet, where all of a sudden, whether it's the Facebook, whatever he's planning or something else, there's going to be a lot more of that. I'm starting to feel a little bit ancient here because I'm remembering now my very first exposure to the Internet was when I was attending grad school in New York City in 1986. And the way we connected was using an old fashioned telephone handset that you then placed instead of holding it up to your mouth and ear, you placed it into, I guess, what was the modem. And it was connecting that way. Yeah, I mean, that, that's what I meant when I had a 300 board modem. And then one day I, I moved up to a 1200 board modem. That was like a big thing back then. But exactly. And sometimes, you know, when I was doing it at home, when I was first starting, my parents would pick up or something and ruin my game. You know, and those, those were the days. And so you ended up becoming uh, one of the first admins for ICC, the Internet Chess Club. Uh, how, how did that come about? So um, working, so again, you know, by the early 1990s, I was on this Imagination Network. And, um, you know, I was doing some things on there. I ran uh, like a, a solitaire puzzle type thing. Um, uh, the funny thing about it is, again, I was only 1,800 or somewhat strength, at least according to my official rating. And um, there were very few strong players. Like, I was one of the strongest players at that rating. And uh, I don't know what my strength was probably around there also. And, um there were just a couple of people. There's an IM who was on there, and then there was Grandmaster Roman Gingingivilli. And it was funny. I got to play him a lot because there was no one else on. And so he would come on under all these different handles, you know, like like Bulgaria, I remember, and different things like that. And he'd play me, uh, you know, um, and he wouldn't tell me it was him. But it was very obvious, you know, because everyone's so weak there. You know, if I moved 10, I'm like, oh, this is Roman again. You know, he's like, what's it on? And back then, the computers, uh, at least in the beginning, weren't strong enough, really, uh, you know, for cheaters. Um, so I'd always act a little surprised. Is this Roman? And he goes, yeah, you know, it's Roman. But um, that was also a great experience for me, being able to play such a strong, um, interesting grandmaster uh, on the uh, imagination. Network. But in any case, uh, getting back to your question, um, so Marty Grund, who eventually became one of the owners of uh, the Internet Chess Club. He was telling me, you know, why pay all these fees in Imagination Network? I'm over now at the Internet Chess Server, and you can do everything for free. And he was working with Danny Slater, who um, uh, was one of also one of the partners, and um, eventually Eric Peterson became a partner, and they had a fourth one who was a minor partner, I think his name. But in any case, I, I went over, and sure enough, I think the first time it didn't, I didn't really... Uh, stay there too much but eventually obviously i went over and i was really into it um helping out everyone because it was a new thing and it was a free thing at that point it was the internet chess server that was free um so it was like it, it was a whole pioneering aspect to it um and uh they had uh it, it wasn't um yeah they, they had this interface vix which i remember I, I eventually was a big jump up um once you had the graphical interface uh the big thing was uh Time lag, Danny Slater played a big part in this. Um, they didn't have a thing called timestamp. So you would have lag where you're playing someone and you're waiting like two or three minutes and then the move comes and you're deducted for the time. So Danny Slater programmed something which took advantage of that and I mean, which, you know, um, 
fix that problem. And that was a big thing for the Internet Chess server. But then jumping ahead a little bit, so so they made me an admin. But then shortly after I became admin, um, they decided to become Internet Chess Club, which was commercial, um, like a business venture where you'd have to pay membership fees. Um, and there was a big split. So the people who wanted to keep with free, they created the fix FICF. They might still be around the free internet chess server. And some of the admins went there and started that. And then I was on the internet chess club. Now the thing with the internet chess club, it got a bad rap in the beginning, you know, cause they're trying to charge money, but they were planning on doing things with that money. And eventually, you know, internet chess club, they were really a pioneer in, in all sorts of things that they, they started and, including having me broadcast tournaments and they were able to pay real programmers for programs and, and do all sorts of stuff. So there was uh, the free internet chess server was a bit behind in that respect, although it was good in its own way. So you had kind of the best of both worlds. But uh, when I first started, it was like a, you know, um, I mean, when that first started, which was only a couple months after it came out and it was like a big war uh, online. Um, but, uh, you know, as we'll talk about, you know, I, I definitely, uh, you know, it definitely gave me a lot of good experiences. Uh, I met so many uh, people through it, not just um, through the online, but the admins on there, the other admins uh, who I still am in contact with, a lot of them uh, were really great people. So it was nice. You know, the other thing I have to say, uh, social media. So now everyone goes on Facebook and is chatting and posting on social media or all the other sites, obviously. Um, I think I was also early into that because Internet Chess Club, it's sort of, or Internet Chess or all these places, they sort of, um, you know, they had that aspect to them where I'd go on and I'd talk to my friends like Marty, who eventually created the Internet Club, and all these other people. So I was, you know, chatting and it was like a new type of friendship, you know, where it's it's not like a real friend that you have, like, and you, you go see in person and stuff, but it's also not like a stranger. And I remember thinking that at the time, like, I know all these people on the Internet and it's sort of a new type of socialization, you know, and, and of course, now that's exploded with uh, all the social media. And you mentioned the Harvard Cup earlier. It, it was this ICC experience as an admin that led to you broadcasting this event, correct? Oh, absolutely, yeah. My understanding from you is that this was the first live tournament online ever? I um, Well, it wasn't an online tournament. It was an online broadcast. Uh, that, I'm sorry. That's what I meant. Yes. I'm, well, first of all, I doubt anyone did it other than the Internet Chess Club back then. And I'm pretty sure it was the first one the Internet Chess Club did. So I remember being there um, at the at the Harvard Cup, which was in the city, uh, in New York City, and uh, you know, again, Chris Shabri ran it, and it was a famous uh, tournament. The couple of stories related to this, it, it was a famous tournament pitting the grandmasters against the computers, and um, I remember Eric Peterson giving me his laptop, and I was just amazed. <laughs> like, you know, looking back, it was probably some huge laptop, but I was like, whoa, a portable computer. I mean, they had them, but I hadn't used one before. Um, and yeah, that was that was a great experience. Um, one funny thing with that, uh, I was um, I had a friend who's about like fifteen hundred who was running the demo board. So I was online, you know, broadcasting the moves of these games. And um, the friend who was doing the demo board, he wasn't a very strong player, and he kept messing up the moves. And I'd go, "Whoa, you know, are you sure that rook went to C one?" You know. And then he go, oh, yeah, you're right, Brian. You know, I didn't go to C1. Meanwhile, I'm online with like thousands of people going, well, who's this idiot? You know, why would he put the work on C1? And, you know, I can't go with my friends. You're getting me in all this trouble. So, um, at the end of the, uh, at the end of that game, 
when he made so many mistakes, I talked to Chris Chabri, and Chris Chabri goes, oh, okay, um, what we're going to do is we have this Harvard professor who's going to run the demo board for you, and he's like 2,300, and, uh, you know, he always wanted to run a demo board. Um, and uh, sure enough, they put that guy on it, and he did a great job. Then years later, um, I'm at the amateur team tournament, and I see this player named um, Lev Zilberman, a lot of people know he's kind of a famous character in New York. And I go to my friend, um, oh, you know, that's uh, there's that guy who ran the demo board. He's 2,300, you know, super strong player. And he said, that's Lev Zilberman. He's not, he's not a 2,300 player. He's not a Harvard professor. So I don't know if Chris made that up. Or it could actually, there was a, there was a famous mathematician who, looks, who is 2,300. I forget his name that looks like Lev. But uh in any case, that was kind of funny. And you also broadcast, as I mentioned earlier, the 1995 World Championship match from the top of the World Trade Center. That that had to be a great experience. Did did you get to meet the players in person as well? Yeah, that was a huge experience. And by the way, I've been, as you mentioned in my bio, I've been working with mostly disturbed kids in Massachusetts uh, for quite a while, so like 1994 or so, and then moved back. Now, all this time... I really had not met a lot of strong chess players other than the people I knew online, but, you know, in person, not, not too much. Cause where I lived in Massachusetts, uh, there, there were no strong chess players. And, um, you know, again, I had gotten it in Syracuse, not really. And, you know, when I lived at home, so, uh, it was a huge thing. I went there and there's all these great chess players, you know, basically everyone, it's a good thing. 9-11 didn't happen then because the chess world would have lost uh, so many great players, uh, we had all the commentators, Joel Benjamin, uh, you know, Walter Brown, uh, Roman, Roman was there. I can go on and on. Um, and uh, that was just a huge experience. And, and as I said, what happened was uh, I went with Carol Jarecki, recently deceased, uh, a famous tournament director. I met with her at the World Trade Center and the organizer to inspect the uh, site. This was before they had set it up. And as we're walking through, you know, Carol's pointing out all these different things. And I'm just, you know, I have nothing to say. And then the guy says, well, you know, is there anything you want for this Internet chess club? And again, the Internet was kind of new. Um, and I said, well, you know, it might be hard to see the players. I don't know, you know, maybe we, we could, because I really have to be able to see them and, and see the moves and stuff. And, uh, you know, and explain, like, not even so much to see the moves, but to say, oh, Casper's sweating or things like that. And the guy goes, oh, we'll, we'll build a glass proof above the players. And, yeah, so not only did I get to go to the World Trade center and meet all these people but you know i was the only guy me and the people working with me and v friedman and lee walker were above everyone in this glass booth looking down on the players it was absolutely surreal and um that was a, a fantastic experience uh, i do remember i was with uh, i have a couple of things with that uh, that uh, a lot of memories of that but um one i remember i was listening to larry christensen um going over some of the games and I said, uh, Grandmaster Stephenson says hello. And Larry's looking around for Grandmaster Stephenson. And I'm like, no, no, he's on the computer. And Larry had no idea what I was talking about. But uh, that was uh, early, you know, of course, Larry Christensen eventually uh, learned all about the internet. Um, but uh, I remember teaching Walter Brown, you know, he, he needed to learn how to use So I met him there and I was helping him with his, computers, how to get online and do stuff like that. We had a little bit of a relationship there. Clarify, are you talking about the U.S. chess Walter Brown or the Grandmaster Walter Brown? Grandmaster Walter Brown. So he saw me, uh, I remember I, he was analyzing a position and uh, computer stopped. 
he was analyzing a position. Actually, it was the famous game where Casper sacked the night, uh, game 10. He follows this old analysis and blasts Vichy out of the water, one of the early examples of supercomputer prep. And Walter Brown was analyzing this position with some of the other grandmasters, Nick Fermian, Roman, and all, all sorts of people. And uh, he said he wanted to talk to me about the computer and I had to get going because I had to catch the train. So I tapped him on the shoulder and he must have jumped about 10 feet in the air. I mean, he was like in such book. He was kind of a nervous guy and an incredibly focused guy. So when I tapped him on the thing, I was like, whoa, I didn't expect that reaction. But the funniest story that I have from that is, uh, or at least one that I was recently telling this to a friend, um, they were actually going over game three of the match. And, and I remember this game very well because I came in and they had locked up my keyboard. So I have to broadcast the game and I don't have a keyboard. And, you know, I'm like, what's going on? It's like a frantic thing. Um, and eventually they tell me it's in Anand's dressing room. One of the security decided to lock it up in Anand's dressing room. This is literally before the game begins. Um, so I didn't know what to do. You know, they're paying me to broadcast the game, but I'm not going to interrupt Anand right before the game. And before the game is an important point, because, you know, you mentioned when the game's starting and how the players look and things like that. So anyway, the organizer goes, Oh, don't worry, an ant's not in there. You, you can go right in and get your keyboard. And I'm like, okay. So, you know, I knock on the door to be extra sure. No one answers. And I open up the door, and, and of course, an ant's right there. It's literally like three minutes before the game. I mean, it's like right, right before the game. And I feel like an idiot. I mutter something about the keyboard and just go in and take it. You know. And uh, anyway, that game, an ant misses a win, the sort of win that a player like him should find. And... Um, so then later on, I'm in the, in the press conference. This was the VIP press conference. I, you know, I was able to get in, uh, you know, the ICC. And um, somehow this hustler, Poe, is also able to get in. He's a famous hustler uh, at Washington Square Park back then, places like that. And he goes to Anand, um, who I'm maybe four feet away from. He goes, you missed that win. Do you think Kasparov would have missed that win? And Anand just shoots back immediately. Well, Kasparov did miss the win because obviously Kasparov wouldn't have allowed it if he, if he did it. But I was so scared in that press conference that he was going to like point to me and go, this guy, you know, two minutes before my game, you know, and I'm sure Kasparov, God knows what would happen with Kasparov's dressing room. But um, let, of course, he didn't do anything like that. It's very nice. Uh, well, that would have been very on point to your earlier Zelig comparison. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It was unbelievable. <laughs> so uh, that was great. Yeah, good times at the at the uh, ninety five World Championship. And uh, the the last question on this topic, uh, you also did deep blue commentary, yeah, uh, doing beginner commentary, right? Yeah, again, that was through ICC. They, the the um, IBM one said it actually wasn't directly through IBM; it was through something Electric Minds or something. But essentially, I was contracted to work on the website on the beginner commentary, and um, and I went there every day. I did that. Um, I was in a room with Malcolm Payne, international master Malcolm Payne, who's a famous figure in England. Um, and uh, we were just there, uh, and it was kind of a closed-up room, And then, but not very far away was where Casper was playing the computer. Um, I remember, uh, I think his name was Lou Gerstner or, or, or something like that, who ran IBM. He was the, the uh, chairman of IBM at that point. And IBM did very well from this match. Their stock, like, shot up. And he was so happy, and he made some joke in the room. This was when Kasparov uh, was going to lose uh, something like, um, oh, you know, the strongest chess player in the world is going to beat uh, Gary Kasparov and, you know, laughed. And I had a, I'd hold my hands back. I was like very upset. 
But because uh, by the way, back then, Casper uh, said something. It's the fact I think people look at the game. Casper really was still stronger than the computer back then. Probably a year later, he wouldn't have been. Um, but he just played like ridiculously. And one example from this, uh, the the this was a very this was really funny, or not at the time. When I was doing that beginner commentary to the last game, Casper falls into this trap in the Carol Khan. And I had played the Carol Khan back then, you know, in Blitz, well, in general. And um, I knew this trap. So I'm sitting there in the beginning commentary. And I, I even didn't, you didn't have it today where, you know, if you're watching a game, there's like 20 different sites you can go to that are covering the game. You can talk to a million people about it. Back then, you know, I was on the site and that was it. And um, so I'm, I'm seeing this, this positional blunder he makes. And um, so I'm basically telling them in the beginning commentary, well, I don't understand it. You know, as far as I know, this loses. Um, you know, this is a very serious mistake. I think nowadays the theory has caught up and they, they found some ways to survive that position. But in any case, um, while I'm talking about this, uh, all of a sudden other people are coming in and they're saying that the Grandmaster who's doing the advanced commentary is saying that Castro is winning the game. And I don't know what I'm talking <laughs> about. And again, I can't really, you know, I don't know where Malcolm Payne was, but I can't really, you know, I don't have any other access for whatever reason to any other site on the internet. And, uh, you know, I'm like, well, I, I don't know what to say. You know, all speeches are blocked in with Matt. Um, sure enough, now we know Casper did lose that game very badly. It's probably the worst game of his life. And, um, yeah, you know, was, he fell into that bad trap in the Carol Khan. So I still don't know. I know the advanced grandmaster. I don't want to embarrass him. But I still don't know what he was thinking about. Um, that was the weirdest experience of my life. A very uh, nerve-wracking one. So before we bring uh, our questions to more modern day stuff. Um, I want to ask this question and I'm asking this question f- with my tongue firmly in cheek. Okay. You have the distinction of having played both Hikaru Nakamura and Fabiano Caruana. Right. Did you see any signs of future greatness? How did this all come about? That's an excellent question. Um, so yeah, this is, you know, again, uh, we get back to me being a Zalig because, you know, this is the, the 1990s, late 1990s or so, maybe early 2000s or whenever. Um, and at that time, as you said, future players who would be number two in the world are going to be playing at your club, you know, on Long Island. It would have been like, are you ridiculous? Because pretty much any great player back then came from Russia or certainly not, you know, I mean, there, were, there was Bobby Fischer, obviously, in Brooklyn, but in general, you know, not that many strong players. And um, in terms of the future talent, I, I wish I could say I, I I saw a bit of it in Hikaru Nakamura. You know, Hikaru has that, and he still has it to some extent, you know, that that genius attitude, you know, uh, very confident. And um, I remember with Hikaru, I, I had one of the really best tournaments I've had. I played in a FIDE Futurity. I finished ahead of him and his dad is like 23, 24. Again, an amazing tournament for me. And um, I remember playing him, and he blundered. Uh, and again, he was very little. He was nowhere, you know, he was 1,800 or whatever he was back then. He, you know, this was the start of the Carol. And I remember uh, he kind of cheered up. But even then, when I looked back at that game a while ago, in like kind of a completely lost position because that, that blunder he made, um, he found a way to try to complicate it. Unfortunately, the position was so bad for him, probably the worst game in his life. Um, but he still, even then, I think he showed a little bit of his talent in that rather than go down the simplest way, you know, he found at least a little bit of something that's make it slightly more complicated. Um, and, uh, but then the, the funny thing about that game is 
uh, again, I don't want to act like I have tournaments like this all the time. This was amazing. You know, I had actually locked up first um, before the final round and and his dad was bringing him in from Westchester, I believe. So um, I'm sitting there um, overhearing them talk and and Sunil, you know, again, 2300 or so at that time, says to his 1800 son, well, you know, if you want, I'll give you a draw. Then we don't have to come in next week. And uh, Hakaro, you know, kind of wipes away the tears and looks up at Sunil and says, no, I have something prepared for you. (laughs) (laughs) And then then six months later, I play Hikaru, and this is the only game I can think of where I can relate to people who talk about playing Casper over Fisher, where they feel like energy that they want to beat you so bad. Um, And uh, I I play Hikaru, and he he was already, I think, maybe 20, like he gained a billion points between that game and this game. And boy, he just tore me apart. Stupidly, I played the Grand Prix Sicilian against him, which he played and his dad played. But in any case, I don't think there was any surviving that game. And then uh, and the, the tail end of that game, after I lose that game, um, I, I say to my friend, I say, well, at least it's only a quarter K or, or a third K, whatever I thought. Back then, game 30, because it was a game 30 game, was, was not rated full K. And my friend's like, no, sorry, Brian. They changed the formula. That's a full K. Um, but that was funny. I would say Hikaru, I don't think I would have guessed that he'd become, you know, at his peak number two in the world, but it was pretty clear he'd be a, a pretty serious grandmaster. Again, he had that kind of fierce attitude. Um, you really couldn't feel how much he wanted to win. Now, Fabiano was different. Fabiano was uh, very laid back. He he started playing at our clubs, the Freeport and SHS clubs, probably when he was around five or so. Extremely polite, uh, you know, not emotional at all. And, um, yeah, I, I, I remember, um, you know, after some years, we were at a continental chess event, me and some of my friends from the National Chess Club. And uh, Fabiano was there at the table. I think he was all alone or so. Maybe his dad, his parents, by the way, great people. You know, he had a good family. Um, but I don't know what he was. Maybe he was like 10 at the time or something like that. Um, and he was at the table and had a terrible score. He was doing really bad. Uh, it was probably the under 2200 section. And I remember me and my friend saying, boy, you know, he's homeschooled. He's, you know, he's dedicating everything to chess, you know, from, from five years old. I don't know. They, they really shouldn't have done that. I don't think he has the talent. And then of course, <laughs> looking back, I was very wrong because obviously he's become one of the best players and uh, really just a, a nice guy. You know, I remember um, a number of years ago, I, I said something to him online or something and, he, you know, he said, he, you know, oh, do you even remember me? He's like, oh, yeah, I remember you. I remember the Napa Chess Club. And, uh, you know, he, he's just a really great kid. But I, I did not see the talent. I think part of it is when someone's so nice and polite and he didn't exude confidence, um, you know, maybe that's part of what people see in talent, you know. And, and honestly, until he moved to um, – what happened was he eventually left America. He went to Italy. I think he, he started working with the Soviet trainer. I forget his name. Um, I think that's when, in general, people saw the huge increases. Up until that point, um, he was working with Myron Scher. Obviously, you know, he did a good job with him because, you know, what happened with Fabiano. He was working with Myron Scher and Robert Hess um, and probably some other players. But, uh, you know, again, he looked like he was on the path to be like maybe Robert Hess, you know, a a pretty good grandmaster, but nothing like what he became. Um, Yeah, that's that's basically my experience with them, but... uh, uh, those are those are great stories and and uh, somewhat unique because not many people can can say they've had that experience. It was just but, unbelievable. So, uh, you know, one other thing that I always mention with Fabiano, 
he was playing Stuart Pankin, this uh, expert at the club, and in a blitz game, it was a blitz tournament or something. And um, he just blundered. I forget what he was up. He was up a lot of material. He was going to checkmate him. Um, you know, like he, let's say he was up a king and a queen versus a king and a pawn, maybe because the guy was able to win. And he lost some time. And uh, you know, I would have been crying. You know. <laughs> And then I'm, I'm just exaggerating. <laughs> but, you know, you would think he was so little, he'd cry or so, some sort of, you know, being upset. But just like a professional, he just got it from the table and, and moved on. Um, yeah, very professional, uh, little, little, even back then. And you can see it now in the same way in the press conferences and stuff. So let's take our conversation all the way to 2021. Um, you are the administrator. In fact, you, would, you or administrator. You've actually started two successful Facebook chess groups. Uh, you know what? I'm just going to turn it over to you. Why don't you talk about both of them? Okay. So um, I first started actually a Scholastic page, which I, I still run, but not so actively anymore. Now, that was a page. It's not a group. So there's different Facebook rules. Um, if you type Scholastic chess on... Uh, on Facebook. I think it pops up. I haven't really kept it up to date though, to be quite honest. And so I had experience and I figured that would really take off, you know, it's classic chess. Um, and uh, basically I'm someone, you know, I'm a huge chess fan uh, as we, I think established already. So even before all these Facebook groups and stuff, I'm always reading about chess. You know, I used to go on chess space and chess cafe and all whatever chess site there was and read up on it religiously. And uh, of course the books and stuff. Um, so what I did is basically whenever I came across a story about scholastic chess, I would post in the scholastic chess group. And then, um, at a certain point, I think I was watching, you know, just TV. I think it was like the NBA championship, maybe something like that. And, uh, I said, you know, I like chess books. Why don't I create a book? And I didn't think it would be that big of a group. You know, like I thought scholastic chess would take off. It really didn't. I mean, we have maybe 2000 people. Um, again, though, that is a page, not a group. Uh, and then uh, I said, yeah, you know, maybe like 10 or 15 of my friends will be in the group and maybe there'll be a couple hours. I didn't expect it to be anything big, but I thought that would be great. You know, have 10 or 15 kid, people that I knew who are into chess books and we discuss it. So I literally created the group during a commercial and I didn't think much of it. And uh, needless to say, now it's at 40 some odd thousand. And, uh, but I'll be quite honest, you know, sometimes I get, so I have a couple of rules I'm pretty strict with, uh, that you can't um, ask for like uh, illegal copyrighted material for, for obvious reasons. I mean, it's just criminal. And, and I think really, honestly, it's, it's not even just the, the moral and ethical uh, points, but also I think the group just wouldn't be uh, a real group if I did that. At best, it would be some shady group where no one's really talking and just trying to, you know, download free material, uh, you know, illegal material. So that right away, I, I established that. And um you know, just the other big thing that I did was keeping it to the topic of chess books. So I remember early on, someone posted some YouTube video about the windmill sacrifice. This is like, you know, where when we started and I'm like, I can't allow that stuff in here. You know, people are coming here for chess books. And I do know as a chess fan, when I go to other groups, not just in chess and other things, um, you know, you'll get these groups, whatever they're called. And, you know, yeah, there's all these silly videos that have nothing to do with the topic and you know, all this other stuff. And then it's like, well, what's the point of this group? You don't even want to go back. So I think the two rules are keeping it to the topic. And in the case of chess books, not allowing the legal material um, was a big factor and it just really exploding. Um, and again, it was a, a shock to me. I, I also, and I make this point in the group, um, uh, you know, again, I, I feel more like a Zelik who's in the right place at the right time. 
because I don't think I've done anything that special. I, I do, you know, monitor the group and, and do some things. But um, in the end, I think the, the people who are into chess books nowadays, um, I mean, we can talk about all sorts of strange things about us. But for the most part, I think they're good people. You know, they, they're that in today's society with all these distractions and all sorts of things that you can do, they enjoy reading chess books. Um, generally, we don't have that many bad people in the group who are starting arguments and this and that. I mean, occasionally we do and we get them out of the group, but um, it's a very easy group to manage. You know, other groups that I've managed have not been as easy. And a very intelligent group also, especially about chess books and chess. Because again, if you're, in, if you're into reading chess books, it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be a strong player, you know, because as we know, reading chess books doesn't necessarily make you a strong player. But it definitely means that you're interested in the chess culture and, and things like that. So I think we have a very high IQ uh, chess group there. Um, and again, I don't think that I've done so much. I've been a, a good member and I do do some policing here and there. But for the most part, it's uh, just kind of what I had in mind on steroids. But I have had people threaten me, uh, you know, some of the people I kick out of the group, oh, you know, I'm going to open a rival site or I'm going to do this and that and you'll have you'll lose your members and and I'm like you know what this I say this to myself if I had 15 members in that group who are really into chess books you know I'm going to be happy like from a personal point of view I'll be happy I mean it's great to have more and you know particularly the ones who contribute and, and know a lot about chess but in the end you know even if there were just 15 active users that would serve its purpose for me on a personal level. And I can say, as as a longtime member of this group, uh, the group's it's remarkably active and on point compared to just about every other group I'm a I'm a part of on Facebook, no matter what the topic is. Exactly. And I and I think another uh, thing that speaks to its success is I think one of my favorite posters in your in this group is Nigel Short, and yeah. to me that that speaks a lot to the success of this group. Oh yeah, because uh, again, that's another amazing thing. I never expected any of this, and yeah, it's great. And I, you know, Nigel put out this fantastic book, Winning, uh, where he goes over tournaments he played in, like the complete tournaments, and that he eventually won. And it's a great book. I think it's uh, going to be up for Book of the Year. But I would love to see him at some point write a book um, on the chess history. Uh, you know, it, it, he's uh, he he mentions books he read, reads like he read the. Uh, Harding book on Blackburn, which is a big book on Joseph Henry Blackburn, this uh, famous chess player from the uh, you know eight, late 1800s. And um, I would love to have a player of his strength write a book and explain you know the differences between today's players and and those players. I mean that's been done before, but I think someone like Nigel can give it a real good. Um, I'll mention some of the things that might have been impressive about those players, as well as I mean, there's obviously ways they can't compare today's players, but um, I would love to see a book like that. But yeah, Nigel Short, Agard, Jacob Agard, Jacob, uh, Jacob Agard, I think it's pronounced. Um, he's always been great. I remember before I even started the group, this was on the Internet Chess Club. And I was, you know, I mean, I guess I was an admin, but other than that, nothing well known. And I remember talking to him. He really didn't know me. And he talked to me for quite a bit, giving me all sorts of advice about chess. He's just someone, a really open guy who likes to talk chess and talk chess improvement. And uh yeah, it, there's been a lot of people I met for the for there. I do think it's the highest uh, chess IQ group on the on the uh, Facebook for sure. Um, and yeah, there's so many people. Not not even just the famous people. There's some lesser you know people aren't as well known, but boy, they really know their chess. And unfortunately, Dan Schoons, uh, this Canadian master, was one of the best. Uh, he knew like everything and real passionate player. I think he was like a 22 or 2300 rated player at some point, but. Um, 
he passed away recently, but he was uh, one of my favorite members too. I'd also be remiss if I don't mention my colleague, uh, John Hartman, is a very active poster and contributor to the group. Uh, he is, of course, the editor of Chess Life magazine and the host of our sister podcast, Cover Stories with Chess Life. Well, again, me being a Zelig, um, John I've known since he was a little kid. You know, John, uh, I remember uh, when I moved back in 94, he came to, uh, we would study at this place at Delphi University, me and my friends, uh, we came and... Uh, just overall, I remember John coming up. And again, at that point, he was just some, um, you know, 16700. I don't even know what his rating was then, but he wasn't a really strong player. But he uh, he loved chess and, um, you know, he, he really came through. Like he was, uh, you, you could tell this was a real, you know, someone who's really passionate. I, I wouldn't have known that he'd eventually be editor of chess. Like, I remember also he did something very nice. Um, he knew I played the modern. And again, I didn't know like John like we were best friends or anything, you know, he's was, he was a friendly acquaintance. Um, but he had a German book on, on the perk. Um, and he, you know, he didn't need it. And he actually went over to my house to give it to me because he just didn't want to just get rid of it. And I thought it was like such a nice thing, you know, that, uh, here, you know, again, I mean, we were friends, but not like friends, friends. And yet he went out of his way to do that. And I'm really happy to see, uh, what he's done for chess. He's a great guy. Now, you've already mentioned um, the the Bobby Fischer book and uh, Learn Chess with Bobby Fischer and uh, The World of Chess by Sadie and Lessing, which, by the way, is a very important book in my uh, chess life as as well. Oh. Um, since we're talking chess books and chess books collecting, what what other books have been very important to you? Maybe breaking it down into best, you know, your favorite instruction book or your favorite entertainment or historical book. Okay, that's a big question because, again, I, I really, um, you know, I just love chess books. It's funny, I'm like in this studio place and I have like thousands of paper books. And actually a few years ago, I because it was taking up so much space buying all these chess books, uh, I just converted to electronics. So now it's very rare I get a paper book anymore. Everything's on forward chess or the Kindle. Um, but in terms of favorite books, I mean, I can go on and on. I'll say the first one that always comes out is uh, John Watson's uh, Secrets of Modern Chess Strategy. That's a book I read a couple of times and... Uh, I just love it. It's one of the best books in terms of uh, describing like the strategical history of chess. He compares, you know, changes with, uh, you know, in, 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 um, in chess strategy since Nimzovich's time, but he also gives a good rundown of things that Nimzovich did. So that would definitely be a uh, top of the heap. And also a book I read, you know, soon after that book was Jacob Bogard's uh, um, book, uh, something, uh, what was it called again? Excelling at Chess where that him and Watson had a famous dispute over that. Um, I believe it was Watson was saying that there's no rule base. Uh, there's no real rules in chess. It's like very concrete. I'm sure I'm misattributing mis exactly what he said, but more or less it was that. And Yakov uh, said that there are rules and they had a bit of a debate, which by the way, if you go through chess history, that sort of debate has been happening and happened between Steinus and Gurin. Um, you know, Aliak and, and Capablanca style are very different. Um, Tal and Botvinnik, you, you can go on and on. It's a debate that always seems to come up and then Kasparov and Karpov, and then people act like it's, you know, some new thing. There's always, now we're seeing, um, Carlson and Ferozier. Of course, nowadays the players are really universal, but, um, you know, you're, you're going to see some sort of, or I guess a better example is, uh, Nipinamichi and, and Carlson. But today's players are much more universal. So, it's harder to uh, compare as earlier, but um, definitely the uh, the Secrets of Modern Chess Strategy is one of my favorite books. Um, 
the biography, uh, the recent Donaldson book on Fisher is really great, as well as Frank Brady's book. Oh, and Edward Winter did a, a wonderful biography on uh, Capablanca. That's got to be right up there. Um, let's see, puzzle books. I like John Nunn's uh, chess puzzle book, although I haven't looked at it in a long time. Um, a lot of interesting, entertaining uh, chapters and really well done, uh, well written. Um, the, uh, speaking of John Nunn, The 100 Greatest Games of Chess. I think it's one of the best game collections. They just came out with a new version and you really do. You get the hundred greatest games, um, well annotated at a reasonable price. Um, whatever books. Uh, well, let me, let me focus this because we often get new, uh, people new to the chess world listening to this particular podcast. W- what would be a book you would recommend to an adult beginner? Okay. So, um, definitely the, uh, that Bobby Fisher teaches chess. If you if you just kind of know the rules and nothing else, um, that's a good uh, you, you know like um, puzzle book. So that's all puzzles. Um, I think again, if you're interested in the culture of chess, that uh, that Sadie and Lesson, you can get it pretty cheaply used. I think that's a very good book. Um, Susan Polgar, uh, she has this world champion chess tactics, and I'm not like a you know there's some people like huge Susan Polgar fan. I wouldn't really consider myself that. But that book uh, is very good for uh, for puzzles. Um, let's see, like a more oh, the Coxley books are very good. They're geared towards children. Um, he has three books: a red, a green, and I believe a blue book. Jeff Coxley uh, again, and they're sort of in the puzzle vein, um, so they're very good uh, with that. I would say, and then as John Hartman always recommends, the Step Method is is pretty good too. So those would be the puzzle type books. Except for the Sadie Lessing, which goes over the culture, um, I think you'd probably need some sort of a book that, uh, like a game collection. Uh, one book that I I know uh, from experience, a lot of people have uh, used and improved a lot from was actually Chernov's book on Capablanca's uh, sixty best end games. And Chernov's analysis isn't always good, but he has such an enthusiasm and and does uh, he certainly explains some things. Uh, that's a book I know a number of players who became very strong who read that book early on and, and loved it. Um, so I definitely recommend that to uh, so to a beginner. So if you're reading the hundred uh, the sixty Capablanca uh, end games, that's going to show you how the whole game's played with uh, the end game, uh, you know, and then an emphasis on the end game. And then you're doing those puzzle books. Um, that'll take you pretty far. Uh, and um, Part of the general strategy book, uh, let's see, what would be good for that? Like general strategy, um, I'm over my forward chess book. Um, I mean, it's so old, but I really like that Lasker's manual of chess. Um, Lasker wrote this manual, and he just has a lot of deep things in it that, that are well said. I think they just reprinted it. Um, I would, that's off the top of my head. That's what I would do. Oh, and then Mikhail Tao's book, uh, well, I don't know if this would be for a beginner, but at some point past that, the Lightning Games and the Kowtow is a, is a great book also. So if, I hope we've whetted your appetite. If Listeners, if you're not already a member of this Facebook group, it, it is an, it's an open group, right? It's not private, right? Um, I think it's private in the sense that they can't see it or anything. I let um, We do have some sort of uh, criteria. I, I'm not going to reveal because it, it, it helps me uh, you know, keep the, the less desirable people out. But for the most part, we let, you know, if you send an invite and you're an established Facebook person, we're going to let you in. 
You just have to send an invite, but it's not complete. And I, I suspect if you're listening to this podcast like right now, listeners, you, you've probably already made the cut. So if you, if you, uh, yeah, yeah, try to get it, you're, you're going to be accepted in. And real quickly, we, we don't have a lot of time left, but the other, the other group is, uh, the FIDE, uh, World Championship 2021 group. World Chess Championship, the World Championship or World Chess Championship 2021. Okay. Um, so, as we're coming to the end of the show, we've covered a lot of territory and a long chess life that you have. Thank you. Tell me, what has chess meant to you over these last 40 years? Oh, wow. Okay. You know, I hear a lot of people like, oh, I wasted my life in chess. Um, chess, uh, you know, I really have an appreciation for chess. Um, so, you know, one of the things I like about it, it's not hard for me to find enjoyment. So let me explain what I mean by that. You might find someone who like travels all over the world and skydives and climbs mountains and does things like that. And that's of course great. And you know, uh, there's nothing against those experiences. Um, but if that person needs to do that to be, you know, like if, if they're not doing that, they're really bored and, and not happy, then, you know, I, I feel sorry for them because for me um, with chess and also reading in general, but you know, definitely chess is a, is a major part of it. It's never hard. If I have some free time and I'm bored, like I barely even know what boredom means. You know, it's uh, I pick up a chess book or I watch a chess game, play a little bit online. So it's been great that way. I like the people I've met for chess, so many people who I never would have met, you know, much older, much younger. And uh, the thing that I think binds all chess players, there's obviously a vast variety of chess players or different types of people, but they all like to think. You know, if you're playing chess, you know, and you don't like to think you're, you're in the wrong game. So you're meeting some very thoughtful people. I mean, some are smarter than others, obviously. So I think the people I've met and um, that it's really just a, a great source of entertainment that, again, I think, it, uh, you know, I think it is a constructive hobby. Uh, I remember when I was in university uh, in one of my psychology classes, uh, the professor asked, you know, how many people, you know, visualize every day? You know, you know like he was explaining, like, Spatial visualization or something like that, and uh, you know, of course, my hand went right up, and I was surprised how few others. I mean, I'm constantly, as all chess players, are making you know complex decisions. You know, one funny thing about chess, there's so many things that like I put off, you know, like you know, making an investment decision or you know, daily type things that you really have to do, and I'll procrastinate, and then I'll say, you know, I'm pretty, I'm being pretty done, Brian, because when I play a chess game, whether it's a speed game or whatever it is. You know, I'm constantly making these really tricky, complex decisions. Obviously, it won't have much of an effect on my life whether I want to lose the chess game. But I do have to make these decisions about my pawn structure and my king safety. Whereas almost everything you do in regular life, even if it's much more important in terms of how it affects you, is normally pretty simple. You know, like I want to, you know, buy a stock or, or do whatever. You know, it's, it's, uh, it might have big ramifications, but in the end, the, the type of stuff I have to do is normally not as complicated as a pretty serious chess game or trying to figure out why Carlson played a certain move. So, um, yeah, you know, I, I just, I, I am no, no regrets with chess. Uh, that's for sure. Well, Brian, Karen, thank you so much for joining us on this November edition of one move at a time. And, uh, listeners again, go, go to Facebook and, uh, join these Facebook groups. They're active. If you, if you're interested in chess books, if you're interested in the upcoming world championship in a few weeks, these would be great places to get additional information. So Brian, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Dan. It's been wonderful. And, uh, thank you for doing this podcast. I do listen to your podcast, so 
it's nice to be a guest on it. Oh, well, <laughs> thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. Thank you for joining us on this edition of One Move at a Time, which always drops on the second Tuesday of each month. Our theme music was composed by National Master Alex King of Memphis, Tennessee. Our podcasts are produced and edited by Jason Andre at Seven Season Films Photography and Media. Please visit www.sevenseasonfilms.com to find out how to start your own podcast. Our sister podcasts at U.S. Chess are Cover Stories with Chess Life on the first Tuesday of each month, Ladies' Night, hosted by Women's Program Director Jennifer Shahadi on the third Tuesday of each month, and on the fourth Tuesday, Chess Underground, hosted by our Assistant National Events Director, Pete Karianis. I hope that you have learned something of value that you can now use to help build chess in your own community. We'll be back next month with another Chess World personality who is helping us advance our mission statement to empower people, enrich lives, and enhance communities through chess.